Blog Talk Radio. Radio, and I'm Marcia Joyner, host of Betrayed by Hospice, brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit and our producer, Marty Oakley. They afford us the opportunity to talk about topics that are uncomfortable and many do not want you to know about, because it just might change your opinion about what you have always believed, and you might decide to take a different path than the so-called compassionate hospice. Today, there is truly a conspiracy happening. It is not a theory, but a reality. Our vulnerable elderly are being called and tricked into hospice under the guise of free, compassionate care, and many times offered as your only option. This is not true. Let me shatter this smoke and mirrors fairy tale and dispel fiction and lies. First, it is not free. Medicare or Medicaid pays for it which most of you paid into your entire life to be taken care of in your older years. There is an aggregate cap per patient of 29,964.78 per year. What this means is one person may live 10 days or three months or six months, 10 months or more, and if you only live 10 days, the facility receives money for those 10 days. So if the other person lives eight months, part of the money from the first victim, and yes, I call it a victim, is added to that pot and so forth. And don't think for one minute that a nonprofit hospice isn't making money off of hastening people's death. They are. And I've had many guests and others who have had loved ones die in religious facilities, and their deaths were also hastened with the same drugs. Hospice is a big money-making conglomerate whose compassion is for money, not patience. Secondly, it is not your only choice. There are other home health agencies that will provide services that will not drug your loved ones. You need to do research before you need one of these facilities. They may even have state funds to help in some situations. Having the responsibility of taking care of an elderly loved one is not easy. I know personally because my 93-year-old dad lives with us, and it's difficult, but we're able to keep him home. Some people can't. Third, hospice is rarely compassionate, nor do they put their loved one's needs ahead of convenience and the almighty dollar. It is compassionate, is it compassionate, to give people toxic drugs that rush through their bodies and cause depressed breathing, hallucinations, anxiety, nausea, cramps, dizziness, and take away their ability to function and even talk to their loved ones as their whole existence is being snuffed out. To me, that is total opposite of compassion. It is apathy, heartless, and evil. 
Putting in a catheter and drugging makes it so much easier on the staff, and it is quicker to free up a bed for some other unsuspecting soul. Not all hospices have gone rogue, but many have, and you just need to be aware. The criteria today to enroll is a joke, and it is insulting to our intelligence. The original criteria was for someone who no longer could be treated for a disease or an illness and was actively dying. It was meant to minimize pain, not drug someone into a coma and hasten their death with drugs, starvation, and dehydration. People who can be treated with medications or procedures are being enrolled. If you have mild dementia, you can qualify. If you go to the hospital more than three times in a year, it's called a frequent flyer, you qualify. If you can't dress yourself, you may qualify. If you can't feed yourself, you may qualify, or even if you become incontinent. A UTI could cause many issues that could be mistaken for dementia or any of these other issues, but is that a reason to pull the plug and put you down? No one can predict when someone will die unless you hasten their death, and then you can predict it down to the day. Hospice staff, as many of you are aware, are trained to manipulate, and they will tell the patient and the family whatever they think will cause them to enroll because there is a quota system. If having a nurse come to you each week or someone bring a meal or provide sitter service or do light housekeeping is what you need or what you want, then that's what they can offer you. That's what they'll do. They paint it as a win-win situation. They just want to help you, and it it won't cost you anything, right? Except they don't provide compassionate care. They don't follow through with their promises. And the payment is the ultimate. You are your loved one's life. I've spoken to many who have been promised things to get them to enroll, and none of that was provided. And when they ask about it, they're told they have no idea why somebody told you that. It's smoke and mirrors. Michelle Young Doers provides details of this and other fallacies in her book titled Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice. She was a hospice respiratory therapist and saw the quotas and the treatment of hospital and hospice patients firsthand. I encourage you to check the book out for yourself. It is quite informative, and a lot of things I didn't know about I found out. Once your loved one is enrolled in hospice, in many cases they start going downhill quickly, as, again, my guest can attest to this. If the patient is in a facility, the nurses take charge, and the next time you see your loved one, they are groggy, they've stopped eating and drinking, and the nurse may tell you it's a dying process and hand you a nifty little pamphlet with the signs of dying for you to read. Your loved one seems to have all of the symptoms in the book, so it must be true that they're dying. But they weren't when you took them there or just a day or so ago. And you wonder how it happened so quickly. The reason is hospice staff knew that they would start drugging them and that they would digress. Nurse Evil started with the death cocktail, which emulates the dying symptoms, because now they are dying I say nurse, 
because it was my experience as well as others that it appears the nurses are making decisions and telling the doctors because the nurse is the one that sees the patient, not the doctors. Does it mean it's too late for you to take action and save your loved one? No, it doesn't, but you must act quickly. Stand by, and you may want to have a pen and paper handy because I'll give you some, a few resources in a few minutes. And remember that hospice can see patients at nursing homes and at hospitals, so keeping them safe is quite challenging. Typically, in hospital facilities, you can stay around the clock, but now with COVID, I'm not sure you can do that. And if you're with them, you have to question any drug they go to give them ask them what it's for, what it will do, and find out do they really need it. Chances are they don't. If you're in home hospice, they may leave a comfort kit with the family that has everything you need, just in case. The kit contains drugs as morphine, it's also called roxanol, that will start your loved one to the path to death if you follow and administer. And they also give anti-anxiety meds such as Ativan, or lorazepam, or antipsychotic drugs, Haldol or Seroquel. Do they really need the drugs? Again, probably not. Do not fall victim to these lies, and do not let them give them or convince you to give these toxic drugs. I'll talk about the drugs later if we have time, but in the meantime, you need to Google these drugs before they give your loved ones anything. Sometimes when you come in after your loved one is in the facility or at home and they start sleeping all the time or acting different or crying out or they can't breathe or they're throwing up, you don't understand what's going on, and they tell you the person is dying. So they give them something else to supposedly counter the effects, except this is a lie too. It further enhances the symptoms so they can give them more morphine or more Ativan or more Haldol. It's a vicious cycle, and they act like they have the patient's best interests, and they act so concerned it's meant to hasten their death. These drugs are toxic, especially for the elderly, and there are warning signs on these drugs. But it doesn't matter because they're in hospice, and the intent is to hasten their death Remember this, if you gave those same drugs in the duration, the combination, and the time frame to a strong, healthy person with absolutely no disease, that person would die, not from a disease, but from the drugs, starvation, and dehydration. So how is what they are doing to our people not murder? It is. If a person is not actively dying, they should not be enrolled in hospice. It is cheaper to euthanize than to treat someone now, and that's why so many people are being enrolled. And stealth euthanasia is only going to get worse. With baby boomers, they need to find a place to put us. And what better place than to put you in hospice? Imagine turning 65 when you can retire and receive Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid will kick in, and someone decides you have outlived your usefulness. I don't believe any of us will make it to 80s or 90. I don't think they'll let people live that long. And let me clarify something. 
for the people who are hospice advocates and those who've had positive experiences with hospice. If somebody has end-stage cancer or liver failure or renal failure and they're in pain, then I believe that they should be given a small amount of morphine, not to the point that they put them in a coma, but if somebody's in pain, I think they should get something. But if they're not in pain, they shouldn't be given anything, and if they are, it should be to minimize, not to put them in a coma. That is not what we're talking about tonight. What we're talking about is people who are not actively dying, and they're not in pain, and these drugs are given to them for one reason, to hasten their death. A patient and the family should be told if you're going to give them drugs, there should be signed consent to the drugs. You should know what the drugs will do before they give them to them. You should know that once they start giving it to them, and in large quantities certainly, that your loved one's not going to be able to talk to you. You're not going to be able to have those final moments when they say, I love you, or tell you what you've meant to their life. Those conversations will not happen. I believe that many of the people in the nursing homes that died from supposed COVID had large quantities of these drugs in their system also. But nobody did toxicology reports on them, and their loved ones don't know, don't suspect, because they don't know what we know. And who knows what happened behind those closed doors? There's a Facebook group that has a great deal of people in it, and it's called Voices for Seniors. And they've lost their loved ones to COVID, or their loved ones are in nursing homes, and they can't see them. That's terrible. Personally, I do this because my mother was euthanized in Georgia in the summer of 2017. She wasn't terminal, and she was successfully being treated with medications for congestive heart failure. And you can live 10 years with that or more. She wasn't actively dying. They gave her morphine, Ativan, and 100 micrograms of fentanyl. We tried to stop the meds. We tried to move her to the hospital, and we were told she would die from drowning if they gave her fluids. And you don't want your mom to die like that, do you, sweetie? They acted so concerned and said all these sweet, smarmy words like they care. They don't. The bottom line is to convince the family the person is dying, and you need to just accept it and move on. Well, the thing is, we didn't know then what we know now. And my guests didn't know then, but they know now. And we are standing together and we are speaking up loud and strong. We will never accept what they did to our loved ones. Trust your instincts. If it looks wrong and your loved one quickly turns for the worse, get them out. And if they don't listen to what they say, then look for other resources, which I'll tell you about in a few minutes. The drug Narcon is useful in counteracting the toxic cocktail. So those resources that you can reach out to, halovoice.org, which has a 24 by 7 helpline. If you have questions while your loved one is in the facility or you plan to enroll them, you can call them at 888-221-HALO. And for those of you who like numbers better, 
If you are already aware of the dangers of hospice and you've been through this and you want to help, they are always looking for volunteers and they'll train you on answering the questions so that you can help someone else. They also have information on why a living will is not a safe document. They have sample medical power of attorneys. They have fact sheets on the drugs that I mentioned earlier. The other resource is each state has a right to life agency. Google that for your for advice or you can contact an ombudsman. Check these resources out before you need them. There's also a Facebook group titled Murdered by Hospice. And you might ask yourself, why would such a group exist if many had not experienced the worst nightmare of their life? Each week, other victims find our group and join and had no idea what had just happened until it was too late, but they knew something was wrong. Again, trust your instincts. This past weekend, a dear friend that I met two years ago through Hospice Patients Alliance lost his precious grandmother. She would be 100 early next month. But her life was cut shorter than a natural death in spite of his heroic efforts. I've said this before, and I'll continue to say it. Be careful who you give medical power of attorney to. That is what the show is about, trying to warn people and trying to save one life at a time. Tonight, we will discuss another mysterious death by toxic drug cocktail. As our vulnerable and innocent loved ones are taken from us in the dead of the night under the guise of hospice compassionate care, the government stands by and does nothing to stop these murders. Where is the justice? Where is the outrage? My guest tonight is Barbara Page, who lost her dad, Bill Page, at the age of 86, who was euthanized on December the 4th, 2016. Barbara witnessed the crime unfold in front of her, and within hours, her dad was gone. Barbara will walk us through this painful memory in hopes of providing education to those who have never experienced this. A few things about Barbara. She co-founded a worldwide endomarch focusing on endometriosis, where she worked tirelessly to help people. The first worldwide endomarch took place on March the 13th, 2014, and occurred in approximately 43 countries with a flagship event held on the, on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. She also has an ombudsman license and is researching daily to keep up to date on what is happening because she cares. Today, she is using her expertise and connections to help us expose our loved ones being euthanized under the guise of compassionate care. Afterwards, we will talk about next steps as Barbara, others, and myself are working on a new justice program. Barbara, first I want to restate how sorry I am that your dad was also murdered by medical professions. I am pleased to have you on the show to tell about your dad's story and what happened and how this has led you to fighting with us to bring about change to a seriously broken system. And with that, I'll turn it over to you, Barbara. 
Marsha, thank you so much. And, um, uh, you know, for all of the great uh, work that you and everybody in the group have been doing for, for many years. Um, what I probably ought to do is uh, sort of do a, a quick synopsis, and then I can walk through maybe in more of the details. Um, you know, essentially the quickest synopsis is that um, my father was um, a non-terminal and was in the hospital for evaluation after um, he had been having some dizzy spells uh, for a few weeks before, and he had gotten because, and I think it was because of a new medication. Um, and we were going to the doctor to, to look into that and adjust. Uh, but, but he did uh, pass out uh, on uh, no, the evening, November 30th of 2016. My mother called 911. I was four minutes away from them. I lived four minutes away from them. So we were all doing this together, you know, getting 911. Um, and uh, they, we, you know, we sent him to uh, the, the, the nearest hospital. Um, so he was there for evaluation. They didn't know what was wrong, but, uh, but he was recovering. Um, he was eating normally. I saw him eating his favorite um, sandwich. He, he was a foodie. So he, he, was, uh, he was getting his food, <laughs> and he was watching the, his favorite football games. Um, his, his, uh, he's a USC alum. And so um, I've been in the medical field for about 10 years as a medical researcher, um, I volunteered um, as an ombudsman. I've written articles, uh, co-authored a history of surgery book. So, uh, you know, I, I'm in the field to, to a certain extent, not, not as deeply as like MD or, or nurse, for example, but, you know, I, I have a background. And one key thing to, for the listeners to, to think about is that, you know, when somebody is able to sit up and eat and drink, and carry on lengthy conversations, two, three hours, four hours, and watch their favorite football game. This is, this is a non-dying person. That's, you know. <laughs> um, now, if somebody has an underlying disease that may one day end up taking their life, of course, you know, as we do get older, we do have some of those. And so he did have COPD, but it was the indolent, um, all, all diseases, um, COPD is a, uh, kind of an umbrella term for many different diseases, and there's a spectrum. Um, it's not a cookie cutter. Anytime anybody has a disease, there's a, there's often a, a spectrum. Some diseases are more aggressive, and uh, you know the trajectory of the illness goes faster. Well, my father happened to have one that's a chronic or what they call indolent, and it was very slow moving, and uh, and he wasn't even on oxygen actually at home. Um, up until just three weeks prior, for all all these years, he's been uh, having a chronic condition, um, and so he so he did have you know some medical conditions, and the other that he had um, diabetes, so he had two, but these are chronic. Um, but unfortunately, um, the, the on Friday, uh, December second uh, morning, we, the whole family was there and, and he was ready to go home. He, 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 wanted, he does not like the hospital. First time in his adult life ever in a hospital. First time, 86, he made it that far without, you know, any, um, serious situations going on. Um, unfortunately in the evening, um, we, we left, uh, he wanted to get some sleep and he, he actually, he actually asked us to leave. I was going to stay all, all night, but he, he wanted to 
sleep. He said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Um, but unfortunately in the evening, he was, I wasn't there. So, but you know, we're going from the nurse's report um, who verbally told us that he had um, aspiration. He, he had gotten aspiration um, induced pneumonia. Some people call it hospital acquired pneumonia. Um, mm-hmm. So <laughs> now the problem is he's actually more sick than when he came in. And so now we have a de- delay in his, um, you know, now he's in the hospital for a little bit longer. So we come to see him the next day, Saturday, December 3rd, and they had to put him on oxygen because of the pneumonia. So he didn't come in like that, but he, he as many people know, the hospital is actually a very dangerous place to be no matter what because of MRSA and so many um, ways that you can actually get injured in a ho- in a hospital setting. Um, exactly. So, yeah, exactly. So, so just for the listeners, you know, you, you just want to see, look, why, why was he even in there? <laughs> Some people can, can call an aspiration acquired pneumonia, um, a medical error. You know, I, I'm not going down that path today. Um, it's, it's actually very easy to aspirate even, even just all of us. If you're, eating too fast or anything, you know, any, you know, but um, obviously in an elderly patient, you've got to be careful. And, uh, but nevertheless, that's why he was there for additional day, for the additional day. He was supposed to have left the next, on Saturday, December 3rd, but that's why he was in there. So, um, but he's sitting up um, uh, fully, you know, in a, in a sitting position. Um, again, t- um in that case, they didn't want to feed him. Obviously, they didn't want him to aspirate again. Um, so, but he, he was still talking and, um, you know, his full witty self. Uh, he was uh, known for his wit. Very funny guy. Um, every other line is a, joke, is a very dry wit kind of guy. So, um, and so when I, so when I entered the picture, um, I was on night duty. Um, I'm the night owl in the family, so we were taking turns. The day folks were going during the day, and it was my turn to go and stay all night with them. Um, because of my experience as an ombudsman and just as a patient advocate, um, I do have to admit I, I am. I was al- already, um, you know, the type that I, I did felt, feel that I needed to stay overnight. Um, but so I, I come to the hospital in the, in the evening. Uh, gosh, it was around 8 p.m. This is uh, Saturday, December 3rd, 2016, around 8 p.m. And he's, um, he, you know, he's, he's trying to sleep, but, but I woke him up, and, and he was happy to see me. And uh, joking as usual, he wanted to know what was going on in the news. My father was a news junkie. We had three, four TVs on if, he could, if my mother would have allowed it. Um, and he was watching the, it was, it was about a month after the election. And so, uh, you know, it was, uh, he was asking who, who Trump had um, chosen for secretary of state. If, if people were called back then, Mitt Romney was, and he was curious what, what was going on with that. Um, he loved following political news. And then of course his other favorite was sports, um, golf and actually everything. So he was asking me, well, what's going on? Did my team win? And this kind of thing. And his team did win, so we were joking about that. And he said, well, I guess that means there's some good luck in the air. And, you know, so we, we were just joking and talking just, just, just like a normal, you know, 
Um, and I lived, like I said, four minutes away from him. He was the center of my life. Um, you know, we, we talked and saw each other several times per week. I asked him for business advice all the time. He was an excellent entrepreneur and businessman, self-made. And um, so, so yeah, so, so we get there and everything's going well. Um, like I said, because of my experience as an, as an ombudsman and as a patient advocate, I know that a lot of times medical professionals, you know, they do get worried that a, a family member is going to come in and start bossing them around or dictating or, you know, just kind of being um, perhaps disrespectful or rude or, or something like this. So I was on my best behavior. I'm, I'm not sitting there trying to boss anybody around. I'm, I'm a collaborative, collaborative worker. Um, so, but I, I could tell the nurse that was assigned to him, she was not happy with that I was there. Um, this is through nonverbal, uh, <laughs> a, a lot of dirty looks. And, and I felt that. I, and I was, uh, oh gosh, I, I, told, I, I was like, oh dear. I'll keep my mouth quiet and just try to get through this night is what I was thinking in my head. Um, she, she, she seemed exhausted and in a not, not a good mood. I picked up a little brochure to help nominate nurses for the Daisy Award. And I actually put it in my purse. I was going to nominate her um, sure. because she just seemed so downtrodden and just exhausted. And I thought, gosh, she's probably working double shifts. Nurses some are a um, highly abused profession, up to um, 91% in many medical uh, journals um, say that nurses have experienced verbal abuse um, and, and over uh, 90% of, you know, uh, 90% have said they've been experiencing verbal abuse. So, you know, so I felt actually empathy for, for the, the, the gal. Um, but uh, what set this off, so that's kind of just a, like a preamble there, um, but what set this whole thing in motion, um, and I, which something which I actually still feel guilty about, uh, you know, I, you'll, you'll hear in a sec how, how that's so. But um, uh, my father and I were talking for a couple hours. Now it's, now it's 10.50 p.m. thereabouts. He, now he wants to sleep. And so I, he, I, you know, don't bother him. I let him fall asleep, fall asleep. And I was just going to, whatever, I was just going to read or do something. I was really settled to, I was just going to sit there all night. And then out of, out of the blue, the equipment next to him uh, started beeping, uh, you know, you know, alarms. And it beeped for, <laughs> it was probably one second. Within one or two seconds, the nurse that was assigned to him, which, which, who was sitting directly across from him, they each had um, assigned to one patient in this particular unit, um, she, she silenced it. Um, now, again, back from my experience, I've done lots of, even before this happened to my father, I already knew about this. Um, I'm, I'm just uh, obsessed with patient safety. I, I'm, that, that's one of my obsessions in life. So. I, I knew that uh, it's very common for people to silence the alarms. They go off falsely a significant amount of times. But obviously, that's a big problem because you don't know when it's real or when it's, uh, you know. So right. I, I, all, all this was going through my mind. I said, oh, okay, well, it's, you know, it might be a false alarm. It might be nothing. 
I was looking at his vitals on the the, the equi- equipment next to him. Everything, it didn't, you know, there was no coding going on. Everything was okay. And I, so I, so I gave myself a sigh of relief. I said, okay, well, let's see what else is going on. And I look at his arms and one of the IVs had fallen out. Um, what the IV was for, well, in cases of, of hospital acquired pneumonia, um, you know, it could have been IV, it could have been, I'm uh, sorry, it could have been um, antibiotics or it could have been just electrolytes, you know, because people get dehydrated once, once you aspirate, now people, now you can't eat or drink. And so, so I, I actually, to this day, don't know. Um, mm-hmm. But my worry was that, you know, if you start to give antibiotics and then we, you withdraw, that can actually force the uh, bacteria to grow faster. And I, I was quite worried about that. I said, gosh, uh, you know, this, 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 this calls for medical attention. I, I couldn't just sit there and not have antibiotics for pneumonia in a COPD patient, which is obviously more dangerous. So I'm going through all these calculus in my mind. Should I bother this nurse? Gosh, she was in such a bad mood. I really didn't want to, but I just, you know, it's my father. So I just super nicely, I was like, hey, um, you know, so sorry to bother you, um, but uh, it, it looks like the IV fell out. Um, and, and, she, and she walked over, played... <laughs> I, I mean, I don't want to add, I, I try to act factual, you know, I mean, I try to keep things to the fact, but I, in terms of an editorial, I, I have to tell you, you know, she acted, she played dumb. Look, I know she turned off the silence, the alarm. I don't know if she knows, I know that, but, you know, but nevertheless, she acted like she didn't know. Uh, like you were bothering you know, her. Oh, yeah, but she wasn't moving fast. And, <laughs> yeah, I, it was 11 at night. She's doing the night shift. I, I mean, who knows if she had done a double shift? I don't know. I, I did. I still felt bad at that time, but um, but so so that's what it, it all started. It's, a, it's, an, it's an IV that fell out that she she didn't clearly didn't care about. I had waited several minutes for her to do something. Um, if you care, you would have come right over. If that alarm had gone off and you actually cared, you would come right over. Um, so I, I want to make that very clear for the audience. Um, I'm the one who brought up the IV. What happened became an ego trip fight over the IV at this point. And, and that's where I felt like if I had never said anything, if I had just gone to the lobby and called the attending physician, instead of bothering that nurse, if I had just gone directly to the attending, but, you know, going over people's head, that really peeves people off, you know. But Barbara, so you didn't trying... know, but you did not yeah. know what was going to happen and how uh, that of would set not. off sequence of events. So you can't blame yourself for that. Right. I'm just giving that um, background because the, the damage that's done to the two, two right. one person's dead killed and the other person is you know all of us um when you start to hear our stories we we live with these what if what if i done this what if i done this differently mm-hmm. it's really it's very crippling it's psychologically um, um crippling and it so is. that's why i bring that up um you know it takes herculean <laughs> efforts to kind of set that aside and just try to seek justice 
but uh, but I just bring that up because I know other people may be suffering from that, and it's and it's just um, excruciating. But um, but but at, but the, the other point I, I bring this up to is you can see I was trying to be super respectful, and I really easily could have gone over the head. But like I said, I was playing fair. You know, I was playing fair, trying to not get her in trouble. And oh, I tell you, but I I want to tell the audience listening. Go over people's heads if you've got a gut feeling. If some, oh, just do it. I mean, just go straight to the attending physician. If you see something like this going on, it doesn't sit well. But, um, but anyway, so here you go. This is just now we get into a wrangling about this IV. She misses, uh, he's been dehydrated now probably for 24 hours because they can't give him any, you know. So people probably know or are familiar with collapsed veins. This is very common. I, I, you know, my father had great veins, but in this situation, they're 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 collapsed. You know, and she missed um, for ten. I would say about ten minutes. Um, I let her. I sat there and watched her miss. And she was. Um, people who are in the medical field, they might know the term fishing for a vein. Um, that's extremely painful. So it's, it's poking, but it's also moving the needle to the left and to the right, trying to get the vein through like the side of the vein. It's, it's, it's a technique, but it's extremely painful for the patient. My father had been asleep at that time, but obviously that type of pain, not, not the first prick, but it was this rolling fishing back and forth that woke him up straight up. And he said, ow, stop it, stop it, ow, stop it. I said, stop it. And, and, and then, um, you know, so he woke up and he said, stop it. And I said, okay, you know what, let's stop it. Because I honor my father. Look, I know my father. He, he doesn't want that IV. He doesn't want that pain. He doesn't care about the IV. And it was enough to hear him say, stop it, that I told the nurse, okay, stop it. My father doesn't want it. Stop it. Stop it. Let's just wait until the morning, until the attending physician can come back and we can reassess and get a, um, there's something called a ultrasound guided one, two. There's also people that just seem to have the magic touch with IV. Three, you can wait, you can wait until he's more hydrated and the veins are, and four, also get an assessment from the, the physician whether it's even necessary. Maybe he can now is ready to take oral antibiotics. There's so many reasons that it was logical to just stop. But now she was so defiant. Now she is so angry at me and she shot me the dirtiest look and her teeth gritted. And I tell you, that was a look to kill. And I couldn't, I'm like thinking to myself, you didn't even care about the IV five minutes ago or 10 minutes ago. I've been 10. Mm-hmm. Now, suddenly, now, suddenly you want to, oh, I, you know. So I don't want to get in an argument with this nurse in front of my father. So she and I walked over to the corner of the room and she said, let me do my job in a very curt tone. And I said, I respect you. I totally understand. I, I respect nurses. I, I work in the medical field. I have absolute ultimate respect for nurses. Uh, but 
the thing is, you know, uh, and, and I ended up telling her I probably shouldn't have. I said, you know, I, I mean, you and I know the patient has the right to decline if they don't want it. My father is fully lucid and uh, he doesn't want this. Why don't we wait until the morning? It's Let's just, you know, let, let him sleep and we'll reassess in the morning. And she said, no, let me do my job. And then she said, well, if you don't let me do my job, I'm going to take him off of oxygen and, and get him and get him and move him to another unit. And then she said, uh, and then she said, or I'm going to do a pick line. Uh, You know, this is a peripherally inserted uh, central cap. Those are very dangerous. So she wouldn't be able to do that then. I mean, she's just threatening I mean, you. Oh my God. Yeah, those are threats. Yeah. So that's that's I, I, like I said for the audience. Um, not everybody knows what a pick line is, but those have extremely high rate of infection. People can die from those just from infection alone. It, it, it was not necessary. It was just a. It was such a. It was just a blatant threat to get me to back off. Right. And the moment that she threatened me with those, with those two things, I knew I was dealing with an unstable person. I, I, now I was like, I'm in front of a, I felt like I was in front of a wasp hive and I backed up very slowly and I said, Oh my gosh, I can't believe what's going on. So basically in my mind, I had two problems. I had to protect my father, but I also had to leave the room and call the attending. I, you know, it's, mm-hmm. and I, I just, I didn't want to leave the room and have my father in, in their harm's way, but I also didn't want to call the attending in front of them. And who knows what uh, chaos would, you know, who knows if they escalate the threat, you know, I, it was a, it was an absolutely threatening situation at that point. Right. And I decided, um, so at that point, so I'm all like I said, I'm just helping the audience kind of understand the. It just happened so fast, and you're trying to calculate what's the best move here to save my father from getting harmed. And so I said, okay, try. You can try one more time. One more time. But if it, if you can't do it, we 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 gotta get the attending. And so she knew I was focused on getting the attending position. Probably she saw that as like a threat, like, oh, now I'm going to get her in trouble. And I tell you, but, um, but so I let her and I walked back with her and um, she sat down and tried again. My father had fallen asleep um, again. Uh, He was on no medications, by the way, other than like, well, the IV, he didn't have it because it had fallen out. But so, you know, he's not, this is just a normal sleep. He hadn't been drugged yet or anything. And he was not taking any pain medications. He was not in pain and he declined medicine um, over, uh, pain medication over and over while I was there and, and throughout the, his stay. And he did not take pain medication at home. Um, but so anyway, sure enough, she goes, sits over there and of course starts fishing and missing again. My father bolted up again and he used his best efforts to try to persuade this lady. Um, and so he used sarcasm. And again, I go into these details because I want to show the audience. This is a, we're talking about fully lucid. He's trying to be polite. I'm trying to be polite. There's no, we're not combative. We're normal 
polite people that are business people. We are, we have customers. We're polite, you know, we're, we're professionals. We're, we're, we've always had comported ourselves professionally. Um, my father had his own business for 50 years, highly successful oil consultant. So he starts using sarcasm. He says, Hey, you're no Babe Ruth. It should be three strikes and you're out. And she goes, sorry. And he said, sorry, doesn't cut it. I said, stop. And she didn't. And he again said, ow, ow. I said, stop it. And that's when I jumped in. I said, all right, enough. This is too much. I'm going down to get the attending. That's, I, I, that's kind of like stands in my mind. Like, I wish I just stayed right there. I, I, she stopped. I want to tell you, she stopped when I said stop. Do you see the respect she has for younger person? No respect for the older person in, in the hospital that said stop, but she stopped for me. Why? She did Why stop, she stop for you? For me. When I said stop, she stopped. And she was holding up that hypodermic needle and giving me the death stare. And she locked her jaw. And I said, I'm going to go get the attending. This is not right. This is not right. I left the room. Twelve minutes later, a different nurse came in to the lobby. In the lobby, I was trying to find the telephone number of the attending, trying to find the uh, main telephone line number of the hospital. Nobody was there. It's a weekend. You're, you're talking about Saturday. Everybody, you've heard the old saying, don't get sick on the weekend. There's nobody there. And it was, it was right. an absolute ghost town. Nobody was there. Nobody. I couldn't. Uh, so, uh, and my battery's running out in my cell, which came into play in this whole thing. But anyway, I'm trying to work so fast um, to, you know, get the telephone number and get help. And 12 minutes later, uh, they come out. One, one different nurse comes out and says, oh, oh, you've got to come right away. Um, your father was really combative. So we had to give him a double dose of Haldol. And then she, there was a pause, and then she said, and a little bit of morphine. I was already familiar as an ombudsman. I, a lot of people don't know what ha- I already knew. I had researched Haldol. I was actually working before this happened to get Haldol pulled from the market. That's how passionately I cannot stand that. That is the most dangerous drug. There is no medical, there's no therapeutic value for uh, how it all, and I'll, one day we're going to prove that. That needs to get off the market. It creates, um, it locks people in. Uh, it's like a chemical lobotomy. And so, but it there you go. Bad stuff. Yes. It is so unbelievably dangerous, and especially for anybody older. We can't metabolize um, dr- drugs as well as we get older, irrespective of you have, if you have a disease or not. You just you simply can't as we get older. But even young people, um, uh, uh, there's a gal that set herself on fire in the 1980s rather than be injected with Haldol again. She was in a, a psych, psych unit. You, you, this is the worst. I could not believe it. Double dose. 12 minutes I left his side. So they admitted it. They, the interesting part, they admitted it to me, but they didn't admit it to the rest of my family. Unbeknownst to me, they had, so I walked back in and I couldn't, I, I mean, I already knew about Haldol. I couldn't, and then of course the combination, I already knew about morphine. 
I could not believe what I, and, and at that point I kind of start to fall into kind of like a fugue state. I don't know. Unfortunately, I didn't uh, react in, in the normal way that it would be, which would be like get Narcon right now, get the attending right now. Get, you know, right, at this right. point I felt like I was, I felt like I was surrounded by serial killers. I felt like I was in a snake pit surrounded by snakes, serial killers. I could not. And so I just could not believe it. I walked to my dad and he yelled at me, did you change my directive? And I said, no, dad, no, dad, I'm so sorry. I, I just left the room to go get the attending. I'm trying to get the, the I don't want that. I, I was trying to get the IV and he was so upset. And then he, so he's fully conscious still. The drugs had not kicked in. They must have just done it. Um, but, uh, but he points to the people that are involved. He said, they held me down and I can't believe they did this. I can't believe they, um, he didn't use the word assault, but they, he said they held me down and injected me. I cannot believe they did this. And then he looks to the front and there's a, a, another nurse I hadn't seen before. She looked, she's walking around strutting, you know, like a strutting. She must've been like the ringleader. And he said, pointed to her and she said, he said, there she is. That's the one that held me down. That's her. And he, you know, he was still upset, obviously, to have this happen. He said, you, you, you just wait. I'm going to be speaking to your supervisor. And, and a, you know, a couple other things. I'm, and uh, I think he, you know, he, he was infuriated. He couldn't believe the violation. He, he just couldn't believe it. And uh, I, I, you know, I stared at each one of their faces. And they were, some of them were giggling, laughing. They thought it was funny. But he was still fully conscious. At that time, I didn't, of course I didn't know they would have the temerity to kill a man right in front of my eyes. I, I couldn't. I, I thought it, I just, you know, you just can't actually believe. And this is a well-respected um, hospital in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's very, very well-respected. Their, their television commercials are on all the time. They are so well-respected. You just can't believe it. And, uh, but anyway, so again, I here I'm thinking to myself, look, I can start World War III. Can't we all, anybody can start World War III, but you don't, I don't want to upset my father more. He is stuck in that hospital until 7 a.m. when the new shift comes. Do you see what I'm saying? So I, I'm like, I still have to stay friends with, you know what I mean? I was like trying to be conciliatory because where's the, excuse my French, but where's the damn attending? I can't get, you know what I mean? I was like trapped. Right. My father was trapped. It's at this point, it's about 12 midnight. I can't get, I'm calling people to help. I'm, uh, I'm trapped. can't believe it. Well, and that's what and, people need to understand. At a situation like this, you've not ever faced this before, and you are in total shock at what you just witnessed and the fact that now what do I do? What What is the correct thing to do? And we're not educated on this. We don't know what we should do in a situation like that. You are completely out of your element, and it's good that you point all of this out because people who have not been through this do not understand the terror, the fear that you have because you don't know what to do at that at that time you just don't well 
Yeah, and because I had been a um, patient advocate at that time for, well, that was, you know, I mean, almost, you know, several years by that time, I knew stories of family members being barred from the hospital and being kicked out and security calls. And I didn't want to be that person, not because I care, I'm not because I'm afraid of them. I didn't want to leave my father's side at that point. Right, right. And so that my normal, I'm normally a very, uh, I'm not easy to scare. Actually, people, you know, anybody who knows me, I've jumped in with pit pit bull. I stopped the pit bull fight. I stopped the gang fight. I'm not, um, it, it wasn't fear. It was that I'm surrounded by serial killers and I gotta keep them at bay. You know, I gotta, uh, you gotta play you have them stay. I gotta play almost to a certain extent play it's like a chess game. All right, let me get help without them knowing. And that's basically what I was planning in my mind. Um, all right, my phone is dead at this point. That that pretty much ruined everything. So now I'm like, okay, I gotta get my charger, but you know. Like I said, I'm going through all this because, um, you know, in retrospect, obviously, yeah, get extra batteries, call 911, um, have Narcon on you, uh, just all, obviously all these hindsight things that come to mind that what I sh- obviously should have done, but I didn't want to leave this side. And I'll tell you another little detail that I'm not sure I shared with you, uh, Marcia, uh, and I hope I'm not going over the line. I'm, ch- I'm, I'm checking the uh, time. I know we only got about seven minutes here, but... Um, no, I actually you're stopped. good. Yeah, I'm looking at the time. Minutes. Oh, okay. Have, well, I actually, yeah, yeah uh, I wanted to let you know I, I didn't end up, there was a little detail. Um, when I came back in after they after that 12 minute where I had left to go to the lobby and I came back in, the the original nurse that started this all, there's total four of them, but the one that originally started it all, she had a hypodermic needle in her hand and was about to jab him again in the shoulder into the muscle, this is intramuscular, um, with Ativan. She, she, and she even said it, I'm going to give him a little bit of Ativan. I actually stopped after, that, and I put my hand, after they had already overdosed him with morphine and double dose of Haldol, which, uh, and, but, but, um, but I put my hand up to his shoulder, and I said, stop, that's enough. And she glared at me again. I wish I had a video of that. Um, so it would have been the classic quote unquote ham sandwich that some, some sick people on the internet joke about. Ham stands for H-A-M, Haldol, Ativan morphine. Um, some sick people on the internet joke that that's called a ham sandwich. You give that to patients who are bothering you. Right. Boom, out. But um, but so he didn't end up getting the Ativan, but had I not stopped it, him, he probably would have died one hour early. He died within five hours of that injection, of the initial injection, injection, you know, um, but, but, you know, just, I'm just showing you, she stopped for me, but they had no respect for the older patient. Uh, that's very key. Why? Why stop for me? If it's medically necessary, why does it stop for me? But not, you know, so anyway, but um, so, uh, so anyway, so, so he's still awake and he's very upset. But by the time I came in, after the 12 minute, I came back in and I'm sitting next to my father guarding him like a bulldog. My darn cell had 
died. And so now I'm sitting there helpless. I'm looking around for a phone. I'm just like, how am I going to get him without having them? I, you know, so, um, so then, um, the drugs do start to take effect and he goes to he his head falls back in the classic opioid overdose, um, that some people who are in the field um, of helping to, you know, op op opioid overdose, it's the classic head full back and mouth fully open. Right. That's um, a, a key us, sign of, yeah. All of us mm -hmm. have experienced that whose loved ones were murdered by hospice and by overdose. Yeah, it's a key sign. It's a key sign of an opioid overdose. Um, normal sleep, that's not... I mean, I guess there are some mouth breathers you call it, but, you know, um, but that, that, that's a classic sign of, of opioid overdose. And, and of course, Haldol, too, can cause uh, similar um, reactions. But um, I, I saw that. And there, and then, um, and here's the smoking gun. I know it's hard to follow all these. Um, sometimes when you're listening, you're trying to keep this timeline tight and show, but there's a, there's a smoking gun that I want to uh, alert the, the audience to. Um, you know, there the nurse, unbeknownst to me at that time, eventually they told me. But you know, the nurses actually called my family before the rest of my family, before the overdose had, before the drugs had taken effect. What I'm saying is, when he was fully alert, they called my mother and asked her to come to the hospital and told her that my father suddenly turned for the worse and is dying to come to come to the hospital. He's dying. That's so before they knew the, drug. the drug. That's correct. They knew that they had murdered him with the drugs. That's correct. Because and that was going to be a, that's correct. Otherwise, what would be the turn for the worse? Because that's an correct. IV fell out, an IV fell out yeah. and he turned for the worse. Really? Because you drugged yeah. him, you overdosed him. And you, they knew yes. exactly what they were doing, that they were pushing. And this is a man who went in for COPD. Uh, yeah, or just for observation. We didn't know at the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And was in for hospital-acquired pneumonia, a mild case. It wasn't, he wasn't on a ventilator. He was on the nasal, you know, nasal oxygen. But I've, I've been in the medical field for over 10 years. I know... You know, we know the difference between someone who's like on the verge and just in really, really bad shape versus somebody who's sitting up, talking, laughing. Just, right. There's, you know, but but that's the smoking gun that I want to uh, just really emphasize. Um, medical, uh, sorry, the uh, phone records will show this that they called before it had taken effect, and the effect took over to ten minutes, and that's. Uh, it's only a 10 minute, you know, but you know, there's no human, there's no doctor on earth that will put on record when somebody's going to die. These yeah. nurses knew because they knew how much they had given him. And I they didn't were know at the time. Giving, and they were giving him more. Well, they ha had not stopped for the one and I'll right. eventually get to the point where they did more. Uh, I'll get to that in just a moment, but that's correct. But, but that's the smoking gun. And, um, and the other thing I want to emphasize to the audience, you know, um, there's people that do hit and runs, you know, there's somebody in the walkway 
it's at night, they hit, and that person has a chance to do the right thing and turn around and call 911 and get help for the person they hit, in the, right? It's a hit and run. Some people just drive off. And they don't, they don't, they love their life more than the other person. They don't want to get in trouble, this kind of thing. These nurses had five out, and there's eight of them there, approximately eight there, eight, four involved directly, four bystanders. All eight of them know what happened. They had five hours to do the right thing. Five hours to say, you know what, this is actually wrong. You know what, you know what, we better, we, we better reverse out. There's Narcon that could have reversed out an overdose uh, for Haldol. Uh, Benadryl, I mean, there are, um, physicians will not use Benadryl to overdose, you know, because that can, there's, uh, but there are ways to reverse out. There is, to a certain extent, some ways to reverse out a Haldol overdose. Not as exact as the the science as the Narcon, but the point is, every nurse in the first year of, of school knows how to reverse out an opioid overdose. Every single one. Even pre med students know this. Even we in the general public know this. Narcon. They had five hours. They sat there and played the game that he was dying when my family did come, when the rest of my family came, um, within less than an hour, which demonstrates to you they were 45 minutes away. They got there in less than an hour. That shows you how fast they called and how fast the rest of the family, and it was they were 45 minutes away. So think about how fast they called to say he was dying. And they all got in. Yeah, they got in their looks on their faces and obviously scared to death. He was doing so well that morning. They all saw him that morning. But because they don't have medical background, they believed anything the nurses tell them. And the nurses, of course, did not tell them that they overdosed them. Of course. Of course not. But, but you did, the rest right? of my family. Yes, I did. But they looked at me like I was talking Greek. They thought... <laughs> I. You know, it's so easy to fool people. If you've got a badge and a uniform on, you know what I mean? People in authority who abuse it, mm-hmm. people who are in authority and have a badge and have a uniform have, have appear to have more authority than a person that doesn't. And that's unfortunately what happened. My fam- all, Every single one of my family members did not believe me. They just didn't understand what I was talking about. My cell phone had died at that point. I was trying. But, um, but, but they, played, they played the game, the nurses. They played the game, oh, here you go. Um, and they put chairs out, and they were all sitting, oh, you know, when people are dying, they can still hear, so talk to him. You, you see what I'm saying? They played, they played them like a fiddle. That's right. They play like they are compassionate and they care, and it's all part of the smoke and mirrors to make you think that hospice is compassionate. That's not it. Murder is never compassionate. And this was not, yeah. And this was, um, we were talking about earlier, this happens to be not a um, hospice patient. And so we were saying, you know, this evil is growing and spreading because it's already been rampant in, in, in hospice and other settings. And now you can see it's actually spread to hospitals with non hospice patients. That that's some temerity there. Mm-hmm. That that's that's some because it's even more easy to hide in hospice. Now in a hospital where it's not a hospice, and the um, his my father's doctor had was there in the morning, um, and he was attending to you know this was a non non pain person non pain. They everybody in that hospital knows what happened. Everybody 
because this was um, a more clear cut, you know, because it was first time in the, you know, um, he was not a frequent flyer, this kind of thing where they had pulled it, you know, where now you get into medical futility and all of this. So once you let evil go unprosecuted, it spreads. And that's what's happened. That's what we're seeing. Okay. That's why this, this case is important for everybody here. Hey, it's not just hospice. Not that I'm saying um, his case is more important. But you know what I'm saying? This was even more right. audacious because well, more smoking guns. Well, it is. It's happening in hospitals. It's happening in nursing homes. And it's happening in hospice. And the mm-hmm. fact is that they have made decisions and that your usefulness is done. And he was combative as far as they were concerned because he told them no. He told her to stop it. You were there. You said no. And they got together and they supported each other and decided, well, we'll fix this. And they fixed it all right. Yeah. And you can see on the um, on um, Internet um, – uh, there's uh, and I feel bad. I even now I still feel bad. I can't believe it. I, but you know, I, there's three million nurses um, in the United States, approximately. You know, it's kind of an old statistic. Might be more now, but um, there's CNAs as well. There's other um, su- so supporting um, health, you know healthcare providers is the umbrella term. Um, people in my family are nurses. People in my um, my friends and family are physicians. And um, you know, we're we're not sitting here trying to bash. Um, a profession outright. We're, we're, we're not saying that. What we're saying is, if you've got an AK-47 that has a silencer on it and can be used indiscriminately whenever anybody feels like it, that needs to be regulated more. You, can, you, you these drugs, anybody in the in the field can get and kill a man and kill a woman and get away with it because it's in a right. medical setting and the and the police won't come. Um, and often they won't prosecute unless you really push. Now, my father's case is being um, investigated by the Department of Justice. Uh, that's a California. Um, but, uh, but, but I'm kind of ahead of myself here. But anyway, but, uh, so we were talking about how it's spreading. But, uh, but, yeah, they were playing the game and making it seem like he was dying. And because they didn't have a medical background, they, they just didn't understand what I was talking about. And then um, I was trying to... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I think I eventually got. Well, I, I did. I did actually find a, an ombudsman eventually in that in that hospital, and I tried to, you know, I continued to try to get help. Um, and then in the process, they did one fi- final gruesome act um, while I was distracted trying to get help. And at that point, I have to admit, I I, I really lost the ability to think clearly. It's like shell shock. Uh, really, normally I never, I, I always know what to do in an emergency. I was always the type of person you call if there's an emergency. I have, oh my God, I couldn't believe it. I just, I lost the ability to think, unfortunately. And in that moment, they, they saddled up to my brother who has no medical background and believed them, thought he was dying. And a different nurse, so now we're on nurse three, there's a total of four, but a different one whispers in his ear, she says, Oh, it's taking so long, isn't it? And my brother laughs a little bit of a nervous laugh. He goes, uh, yeah, he doesn't know. What does that mean? It's taking too long. What the hell does that mean? And he goes, what? she says, well, do you want me to, I can give him something to make him more comfortable. And he said, okay. And at 4.10 p.m., they injected him with 
this time they didn't announce what it was earlier they had. They injected him, and within 10 minutes, he died. Wow. Mm. 4.20 a.m., December 4, 2016. And your brother didn't, uh, didn't realize, I mean, he didn't. you had really had a his... chance to convince him that what you saw, you saw. I'm the, I'm the black sheep in the family, the activist, you know. They, I'm not uh, beholden to authority. Uh, I'm, you know, you know. They think I'm just a chicken little. They think I it was just another. Chi- uh, no, I say another. Like I, oh, I mean, you know. I, they know I'm a passionate for, you know, patient rights, human rights. And right, I just thought I was, right. a, was like a chicken little boy who cries wolf or the girl who cries. You know, they just think I'm just not handling this. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> when in actuality, they just got so unbelievably tricked um so it's not his fault i we just you know well but once they saw that did did you get the medical records and the do the medical records show that they gave him two injections of haldol one of morphine unfortunately i i was not i tried for over a year i i didn't have the finances at that time normally i have uh, I, I just I, I could not get them. Uh, you know, a lot of people think, well, you can just get them. Um, actually, anybody can who's not playing fair can withhold and make force you to get an attorney to release them. And um, I just I just couldn't. They just literally um, ignored my <laughs> request. Uh, well, I mean, your you know, brother. That's against, that's your against brother the law. Had, yeah, he refused. Your brother had power. He refused. Yes, he refused. When this happened, a lot of families split. They say, "Let it go." He got what he talked. You know, he was he. Unfortunately, so, some people just can't handle. Uh, you know, a lot of people just want to forget it, and right, they don't have. It's, it's, it's too emotionally traumatizing, and I could, I just couldn't. My mother, same thing. I tried desperately. Uh, the nur- nurses board did come to visit and talk with my mother, and my mother slammed the do- door. And, in the nurse in the face. I mean, Good. it's like she she kind I I felt happy about that. As an Irish, a little Irish, she at least got something in. But she, not everybody has the wherewithal to fight. It's very painful to try to fight because you know you're up against a huge enemy. It's it, David and Goliath. It is. It it absolutely is. And when you don't have your family standing by your side and agreeing with you and knowing that what you said is true, I, I can only imagine that that would make the pain be much greater and the grief because they're not supporting you. Um, I know when my mom was murdered, my sister and I knew something was wrong and that they had done this. We couldn't prove it, and we kept trying every avenue we knew to try to circumvent that, even to the point of telling them not to put the second 50-microgram patch on mom. And the nurse took us in the hall, and she goes, oh, sweetie, if we don't do this, you know, we'll be having to chase the pain, and she'll be in so much pain, and she'll go through withdrawals. And my sister and I are just crying and, you know, say, you know, are you sure? Are you sure? Oh, yes, sweetie. Oh, yes, I'm sure. She'll, she'll go through withdrawals. We, we, we accepted what she said. Afterwards, we talked to my mom's doctor who had been in India for three weeks. After he came back, he said she wouldn't have gone through withdrawals. 
And I'm like, well, that's what the nurse told us. And he yeah. said, well, that, that's not true. So they they lie to you. Fortunately, my sister and I were on the same sheet, but my dad did not know it. He thought that it was just that somehow miraculously they knew that it was mom's time to die and, and that she died and that now she was in heaven. And it took me until I moved him with me, 13, you know, 650 miles from his home, when I got the medical records and, you know, I pointed it out to him. I said, look, Dad, look what they gave her here. You know, I did mm-hmm. an Excel spreadsheet. I'm mm-hmm. anal retentive, and I did an right, Excel right. spreadsheet mm-hmm. on every time they gave her the drugs. He eventually saw it and realized what they had done because her reactions yeah. against the drugs were listed in the medical records. So I get, I'm certain they never figured that I would request the medical records. They thought it would be, you know, they'd just get away with it and nothing would be said. But as you know yourself and as my other guests know, you can never unsee what you've seen. You now know the truth, and you know that they murdered your loved one. There is no doubt about it. It's not a theory. It is a reality that we witnessed. And, you know, all of my guests have been like that. They've seen it. And like you said, in the hospital, um, I know Jackie Ferrara with her husband, Tony. He was in the hospital. Terry um, Vargan with her husband, John. It was in the hospital. And and these overdoses were done to them. And they'll act like you have no choice but to go in hospice. And that person's not dying, not actively dying, and they – it's a way to get them out of the hospital, like um, the book Killing for Profit, Michelle mm-hmm. Young Dewar's book, and they want them out of the hospital so they don't have to take the hit on them dying there, and they put them in the hospice. Typically, in your situation, your dad, you know, died in the well, hospital. Well, uh, well, and so yeah, you can the, because through 50, 60 years of the slow encroachment of our rights as patients has been deteriorating over the 50, 60 years. Um, th- these nurses knew that terminal sedation was being given. They, they knew this. They knew it. And so they knew that they had an easy way out to explain, to, to have an, as an excuse that is... Um, you know, even doctors will uh, disagree about diagnoses, right? Uh, you, their standards of care are only, you know, those are only collective opinions, but they can, they're not set in gold. They're just guidelines. But, uh, but they, they, because it's being allowed elsewhere, in this case, they used it in what I call road rage. It was like a road rage moment. And they did enjoy it. They were laughing and giggling. Mm-hmm. Um and I was there, and I, I was there for over an hour after, and uh, I, 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 I took every ounce in my body to not, you know, go up to the face of the one, and but I, I just didn't. I just said, keep your cool, keep your cool, because then they're gonna blame, then they're gonna blame me and say, well, look, they are all that's a that's a combative family, look, but. Yeah, it's um, this. This is spreading unabated, and it's been going on for decades. And, and it will, I, I tell you, 
it will well, get worse. The, I'd like to um, yeah, move on. Absolutely. We have 14 minutes. But I want to yeah, move I forward know, with what, you know, what, what you and myself and several others in our group are working on. I would like to, for you to discuss that because you, you came up with this idea. It's a wonderful idea, and it's to get media attention. So do you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. With a, and I'll keep my um, I've got my clock here, fourteen, thirteen minutes now here. Um, yeah. So, um, so what we're trying, we're all working together, sort of just an, inform, an, an informal coalition of uh, the victims' families that have yet to see, see justice. Um, it's a multi-pronged um, campaign, awareness campaign that we're working on. One is a documentary, um, but also shorter videos that are easier to um to share uh so basically multiple videos one a full documentary and then a shorter one to help start to spread the word um uh in sort of bite size also um these would be considered social media campaigns where you put these stories into an easily shareable format to just tell the plain story um, with the idea that we're putting peer pressure on the authorities. Um, in my father's case, we're working collectively as a group for everybody's story. And then just for my father's, um, if anybody's listening to this, there's, there are a couple of methods that, that may be able to reopen or expedite the, um, the case, the investigation, the department of justice has been investigating and whether it's active is, they're being a little bit coy, but the investigation ongoing. But the California uh, Department of Justice can be contacted if you want to, you know, fight for justice for Bill Page. That's justice for Bill Page. Um, I have flyers that I'm sharing, and I'll, I'll be able to share with, for example, the Attorney General's um, social media. You know, these days you can tag um, public officials. And so that's a peer pressure method, um, for, for particularly for my fathers, but we'll do that for everybody's case to just put each case out there in, in a social media format that can be shared. And also one flyer that has all of our victims' pictures on it. That we can't fit all of them in one flyer, but you know, just hey, here's just a handful that were, uh, this is flyer one of infinity. We're talking about you know, there's very difficult to find the data on it. Um, David Graham is a former FDA whistleblower. Um, back in the 1980s, he estimated that 15,000 um, el uh, elderly, I do know disabled people are also being assaulted like this. Um, in this case, they were talking about the more um, el elderly victims. But that was way back in the uh, 1980s. Um, we, we, it could be much higher at this point. Um, and so, so yeah, we're we're working on that. And for my father's case, I I uh, I don't know if I can share, Marcia, and you tell me. But I was also doing because there are eight people in that room that night. Um, I'm also offering um, a reward. You've seen cases over the years of unsolved murders. Um, right. Although this is not in my I this is not this is solved, but the people who perpetrated it won't come forward. But I'm hoping one of the bystanders might do the right thing and come forward. And so I'm, I'll eventually be offering them um, um, a reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of those involved. Um, I'm, sure. I, 
Yeah, I'm, in, I'm coordinating that with the fourth year anniversary that's coming up in a, in a couple of months of, on December 4. That'll be four years. So I'm, I'm coordinating that. I know that's a, a kind of an odd, I don't know, Hail Mary and whatnot, but I, my only hope <laughs> lies on that there's no statute of limitations for, for murder. And that's for every victim. Uh, if, if, if bystanders or witnesses can come forward uh, this this can maybe help reopen, and a grand jury can be, or you know, you can ask for a grand jury to decide whether to move forward with the prosecution. Well, that's bad. Some, but, but I'm, sometimes, yeah. if you have a nurse that will come forward and say this is what's going on in you know in the hospices, that has a lot of credence because people listen yes. to that. Um, one of the other things that you had posted in our group, Murdered by Hospice, is a text number to text. Can you talk yes. about that? Absolutely. Yeah, so for, for justice for just this topic in general, um, you can text the word resist, R like Raymond, E, S like Sam, I, S like Sam, T like Tom, resist to the number 50409. This Okay, so method, what happens? So what happens is, if you've never used this, this is a bot, it's called a bot, it's a text bot, and it allows you to get in touch directly with your elected officials from your electoral district. Uh, it also allows you to choose between state or U.S., you know, state or federal, we, we have multiple uh, elected officials, but it's a really cool free service, um, and you can do it right from your cell phone. Um, it says what your it asks what your what your zip code is, what's your email, and it starts to ask you a series of questions that you just answer. It says type in your zip code. Okay, here are your elected officials in based on your zip code. Here is your U.S. you know, of course, U.S. senator. There's you know per per state, but. Uh, but Congress, you know, Congress members in your voting district. Once they establish, once this text bot um, establishes that, it then gets. It asks you, do you want to Twitter, to send a tweet to them? Do you want to email them? Do you want to tag them on Facebook? So it gives you all these options. And then after it establishes that, it says, okay, type your message. What do you want to say? Um, it's not easy. It's not like one step. It's several steps. But I, we, it's very, you know, rather than you yourself having to go look up how to contact yeah. your elected official that does it for you, and then you can type in, hey, I just want to let you know this is very disturbing that um, medical professionals are getting away with killing over lethal overdose assaults. Um, I've been using that term, by the way, intentionally. A lot of people don't believe that these are murders. These are murders. But, you know, I just, I've been using different wording to make it clear this is an assault that led right. to the death. It absolutely is. So I think what I'll do is I'll go through that maybe tomorrow, and then I'll write up the different things, the questions that it asked me, and then I will post that in our group, Murdered by Hospice. And hopefully we can share that with the other groups. And believe it or not, to the audience, there are many groups out there, um, Facebook groups, Hastening Death is Murder and Unethical uh, Murder of Patients. I mean, there are 
I can't think of all the names of them right now, but there are many, many groups out there that are fighting for their loved ones. Um, so I'll post that on our group and share it. Um, the other thing I want to say before we run out of time is Barbara's putting together, she has interviewed, and you can tell me the number of people in a second, but she has interviewed a lot of people who have lost their loved ones, and they're going to take bites from that and put that into a video, which would be something like you see um, – that has, you know, my mom was murdered with and the drugs are listed. My dad was murdered with and the drugs are listed. So you would see the people come up and the same drugs will be used over and over again. And you'll see that these people were not actively dying. They had things like congestive heart failure, COPD, dementia, you know, all of these things that are not actively dying. So she's working on that. She has access to a videographer because of her endometriosis work that she did. And I'm excited about us moving forward together, Barbara, and trying to make a difference and trying to save one life at a time. So um, as she – I know you've done – many interviews and should be doing more and we do post that in the group murdered by hospice but if you wanted to get in touch with her to share your story you could do that by yeah so absolutely um so i'll give i have a google voice uh, number um it's area code six five zero two eight five one one four nine and if I don't answer, you can leave a message. And, um, of course, I'm working full-time, so pardon if there's a delay or anything, but I, w- I won't miss anybody. I will eventually get back to him, folks. Um, that's probably the easiest. Um, and, and you can actually text that as well. It, it's a, it, you can text or call. And then um, in an email, I, I suppose, um, might be easier. I'll say it and then spell it. It's bjpage.research at gmail.com and so that's be like boy j like jacob and then my last name page just like a page in a book p-a-g-e dot research r-e-s-e-a-r-c-h at gmail.com and uh, absolutely we're creating a coalition to stand right. up to the, this, uh, this this these vicious crimes because that's what it is that these are vicious ruthless Crimes. It is a crime. It is a crime. And we didn't have a chance to go over the drugs, but um, previous shows have talked about the drugs. And also halovoice.org has a list of the drugs. Um, there a lot of information out there on their site. Remember, there is a group that is called Right to Life for Each State, and you can look that up if your loved one is in trouble or you are or you're considering putting your loved one into hospice or they're there and you have questions, Halo Voice is one eight 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 Halo H A L O. So we didn't have a chance to ask people if they wanted to um ask any questions, but um you can always send questions to T S Radio Network, Marty Blog blogtalkradio.com backslash Marty Oakley and look for Betrayed by Hospice and you can put your questions in there um, or go to the link that you're listening to and put your questions in there. So Barbara, is there anything else you want to say? We have two minutes. 
what I, what I'd like to say is that um, you know if you look at history, you can see that there were injustices that had been going on since the time um, you know immemorial. We we know this. There's uh, the famous 1381 peasants um, revolt. Um, we I mean look at the American Revolution. So sorry for our British friends. You know we're not but you know we're, we're talking about uprisings that have occurred when a people has felt that injustices and abuses have gone on too long. We have the power to stand up and fight this. So help, help us, join us, volunteer, but we're, we're not gonna stand down. We're going after this injustice and we're gonna tear it down brick by brick. Yes, and saving one life at a time is by warning people about the injustices that happen to you, let people know, try to dissuade them from putting their loved one in a place like that, in hospice, and certainly let them know about the drugs. And trust your instincts. If you feel something is off and is wrong, like Barbara said, you know, with them fishing for the vein, Stop it immediately. Do whatever you have to do. If you have to physically do it, you call the police if you have to and say, I believe my loved one is in danger here. Do whatever you have to do to get them out. There is also a group, if you look at Life Legal Defense Foundation, they can get you in touch with pro-life attorneys that can help you get your loved one out of a situation like that. Again, the Right to Life group by state. Google. Google can be your friend. I think that's very important for everybody. Barbara, thank you so much for bringing the information to us, and I'm so sorry about your dad. And for all of those who are listening, thank you for tuning in with us tonight. If you have a story that you want to share, you can reach me on Murdered by Hospice Facebook group or Marsha Joyner2018 at gmail.com or Marty Oakley can always get in touch with me. So with that, good night, Barbara. Good night, Marty. I hope you feel better. And good night to all of our listeners. Thank you for listening. See you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.